happy Sunday. Glad that you're here worshiping Jesus with us this morning. If you are a visitor, special welcome to you. We're glad that you've chosen to worship with us on Sunday morning. And we're going to be in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is where we're going to be. And if you have been here, we're at the finish line of the book of 1 Thessalonians. We're in the last chapter, so we have a few more weeks here in this book. And last week we started by celebrating that Christ is risen from the grave. That's what we sing about. That's what we're excited about. That's what we praise His goodness to us in defeating death. And today we look at His return. We're excited about His turn, re- return and how He's going to fix all these things that are broken in our world. And so, yes, we're excited He has defeated death, but we're also excited and encouraged by the fact that He is coming again. So every week, if you are new, every week what we do is we open up God's Word, we talk about it, allow it to challenge us, convict us, encourage us, and comfort us when needed. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to walk through uh, about 11 verses today in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And like I said, last week we looked at the hope that we have in dealing with death, but today we're going to look at the end times, how all this stuff wraps up. And it's interesting when we think about the end times, I, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think about the end times. Uh, some of you might be thinking basically what Hollywood loves to present the end times like, and maybe when you think about the end times and how all this is going to wrap up, uh, what comes to your mind is uh, maybe that old Will Smith movie with uh, aliens, right, that come back and try to take over the world, right? Or um, maybe your mind, when you think of the end times, rushes to uh, that old Will Smith movie where uh, zombies take over the world. And, uh, or maybe it's not either one of those. Maybe your mind rushes to <clears throat> that old Will Smith movie where uh, the robots take over the world. And that's how it's all going to be wrapped up, right? I, I don't know what's going through your mind. I mean, maybe uh, when you think about the end times and you hear that, you're, as a Christian, maybe you just feel a little bit embarrassed. Maybe you brought friends and family with you to church today, or you're tuning in online, and you're, and you're like, oh my goodness, the end times. Like, it just makes you nervous to even think about it. Maybe it sounds a little hokey to you. I don't know what's running through your mind when you think about the end times and, and what they look like. But what I hope to do in the time that we have is to shape our thoughts and our feelings about the end times through God's Word. What God desires for us to think about. How God desires for us to feel when we think about the end times. Because he is both the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, right? Started with him and he's going to wrap all things up. And so this passage is going to tell us what we should be thinking and feeling when we think about the end times. So let's look starting in verse 1 of chapter 5. This is what the word of the Lord says. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers... You have no need for us to write anything to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pangs come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, 
with a helmet of hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. So that whether we're awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. today, as we read your word, our desire, our prayer, our ask from you is that you would give us right thoughts and right beliefs about the end of time. Help us today to be encouraged by these verses. Lord, I pray that you would help us today to build one another up through this encouragement. And Lord, we know that apart from you, we cannot do that. And so Lord, we ask, we ask you now that you would teach us your word. Let me invite you in a moment of silence just to pray that God would teach you his truth today. Let's pray now. And then would you take just a moment to pray for me as I teach God's truth that I would be helpful to you, that I would encourage and build you up in your faith, and in your next step of faith in Jesus. Pray for me. Lord Jesus, you promised that you're coming again. And so I ask that we would wait with great anticipation on your return. It's in your holy mighty and majestic name amen all right there's a few things from this passage that i hope as we unpack it this morning we can grasp and understand about the end times and the first thing we got to understand is that the coming of jesus is inevitable the coming of jesus is inevitable it starts in verse one and it says now concerning the times and the seasons brothers you have no need for us to write anything to you now, what are the times and what are the seasons he's talking about? Is he talking about fall? <laughs> is he talking about winter or spring? Is that the, the seasons and the times that he's saying, I don't need to write anything to you about that? No, remember, context is king. Context helps us understand it. And just last week, we talked about the resurrection of Christ and how he is now going to come again with the sound of the trumpet. And so as he starts here in verse 1, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about the times and the seasons of the return of the king. When Jesus will come back in and usher in his kingdom. And he says, there's no need for us to write anything to you because they already know everything. And so if you're here today and you're like, I've already memorized the book of Revelation. I know everything about the, the, how this is all going to wrap back up. Then great, because this message is for you. Where Paul wrote it to this church. Or if you're here and you're like, I have no idea what it looks like when Jesus is going to come back again. Great, this message is for you. Paul speaks to both of us in that today. And the reason why he says there's no need for him to write to them is because they know two very important things. And the first is they know that the day of the Lord will come. The day of the Lord will come. That's what verse 2 tells us. You're fully aware. They already know it. They already understand that the day of the Lord will come. Now this term, day of the Lord, is an extremely important uh, word as you look throughout all the scripture. 
you see, the day of the Lord wasn't just a New Testament thing. This is an ancient thought. This is something that the prophets talked about thousands and thousands of years before even Jesus rolled up on the scene. They talk about the day of the Lord all throughout the major and minor prophets. That this is an important day when God will come again. And it's not just one prophet that talks about it. Over and over again, Isaiah talks about it in Isaiah 13. Ezekiel talks about it in Ezekiel 13 and Ezekiel 30. Joel talks about it in multiple places. Amos talked about it. Zephaniah and Zechariah talk about it. Malachi talked about it. All using that same term, the day of the Lord. And then you get to the New Testament and everywhere throughout the New Testament. All the Gospels talk about it. Acts talks about it. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, 2 Peter, the book of Revelation. All talk about the day of the Lord. So this is not something new that's just come on the scene that Paul's like, hey, I want to make you guys aware of this. No, they already know. If they've read the Bible and they love the Lord, they know that this day is coming. Now, what does this day look like when it says the day of the Lord? Well, consistently, time and time again, as it talks about the day of the Lord, when the return of the king happens, it speaks about it in the sense of judgment. That judgment is going to happen. Now, for some of us, that's one of the reasons why we don't like to think about the end times, because this makes us feel uncomfortable, right? Like we kind of recoil just a little bit of like, oh, judgment? Like, mm. man, this is another reason why I wish I wouldn't have brought our friend today. We're going to talk about judgment. It makes us feel uncomfortable. It, it makes us feel fearful. And let me just say that it is okay to feel that way. And better yet, we should feel that way. And the day of judgment should make us feel a little uncomfortable. And it should bring a sense of fear, knowing that the Lord is coming again. The Lord who sees all things and knows all things and knows the depths of our heart and the wickedness of our sin is coming again. It does bring a sense of fear. But what's more fearful or what should be more fearful for us is the thought that this day would never happen. You see, some people don't think that Jesus is going to come back. They don't believe that it's inevitable that Jesus is coming. But if Jesus doesn't come again and justice isn't done, then that is a fearful thought. Because this world is broken. We feel it. Every week as we watch this intro video of the end of the world, right, the, the turning of the world upside down series that we're doing, like I hear those news articles running through and it just brings tension to my heart, right? But it's a fearful day if there is no day of justice coming. You could, could you imagine that? Where things aren't corrected and things aren't made right, then if, if, that, if, that's not, if there's not a day like that that's coming, then all we are are people floating around in a broken and despairing world with no hope. None. That's what you get. That's more of a fearful day. But those of us that know the king and know that he's coming, do we have hope in this day? I mean, even if right now from this very second on, we as a, as a human race could do everything perfect and not sin, it still would not make up for all the injustices in the past. We would still want somebody to make those things that were wrong righted. We desire for that. Our soul longs for that. And so, yes, there's a sense of fear that comes with this. Good. But what would be more fearful is if this day was never going to come. But the hope that we have is that Jesus is coming again. 
He is. He's promised that he's coming back. So you might be sitting here thinking, like, why has he not come back already? Why hasn't he come back? This has been 2,000 plus years. Like, when is Jesus coming again? I don't know if this world could be any more broken than it is right now, right? That's what we think. So why is Jesus waiting? Well, glad you asked. The Bible tells us why he's waiting. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 9 and 10 tells us this. The Lord is not slow in fulfilling his promise. And that promise is coming again. He's not slow in fulfilling his promise, as some count slowness. Instead, he is patient toward you and I. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. See, this context of 2 Peter is exactly where we are here. That Jesus is coming again. He's going to come like a thief in the night. And he's telling us right here, the reason why Jesus is waiting is that some of you in this room or some of you online would believe in him. Repent of your sin and turn towards him. Jesus is being patient, waiting for you. It says here he doesn't desire that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That is that we would turn away from our sin and our darkness and our wickedness and we would turn and follow the true king. So he's patiently waiting for you to repent. And you might be thinking, well, Ryan, I'm already repentant of my sins. Like, I'm already trusting in Jesus. I'm waiting for the day for him to come back. Well, Jesus is patiently waiting for you to share. He's patiently waiting for you to share the gospel to those who have not believed. You see, it's for you. It's just not all about you. The gospel is meant to be shared with other people. And so if Jesus hasn't come again, it's because there's people who have not heard. And Jesus promised that when he comes again, there will be a person from every tribe, tongue, and nation that is singing his praises for his death and his resurrection and his return for them. And so that's why we as a church are sending a few guys, a couple guys to go to North Africa to share the gospel with people. That's why a few weeks ago you gave to get the gospel to people who did not have the translation of the Bible there. What you're doing, Why? Because we know that Jesus is patiently waiting for people to believe. So may we believe and be saved, or may we, in our belief, share the good news of Jesus Christ. May we do it. So we know for a fact Jesus will come, verse 2 says. The day of the Lord will come. The second thing I want us to understand about the end times is the coming of Jesus is unpredictable. It's unpredictable. The end of verse 2, that's what it says. He's, he will come, but he's going to come like a thief in the night. You see, Paul makes this reference of a, a thief in the night because whether you realize it or not, a thief does not set up an appointment to rob your house. He doesn't come by and put a little note on your door, hey, I'm going to be here Friday at 11 o'clock, going to steal all your stuff just so you know. Like, no, <laughs> no. What does a thief do? He knows when he's coming to rob your house. You just don't know when he's coming, right? And what this is... This illustration is highlighting right here is that God knows when he's coming, but we don't know when he's coming. Now, don't take this analogy too far. God is not a thief, right? Like he's not coming to steal stuff from you. That's not what this image is used for. This image is used for the, this unexpected nature of the coming of Jesus again. This is what it's highlighting. You don't know when a thief is coming and you don't know when Jesus is coming. And this illustration, Paul's just ripping from, from Jesus and guess what? He's in good company. 
disciple Peter did it, and John did it. They all use this analogy of Jesus coming again like a thief in the night. And they steal that from Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24 and Mark 13 that he will come again like a thief in the night. And that might hit home well for, for guys. We think a thief, yeah, okay, I'm going to defend my house. I'm going to be ready if I know a thief is coming, right? But then he uses a different illustration, maybe to hit closer to home to, to some of the women. And he uses a picture, this image of a pregnant woman. Now, for a fact, you know when a woman who is pregnant is going to have a child, right? There's like telltale signs that they're going to have a child. Belly starts to get big and you know that to be true, right? And yet you don't know the exact date and what is going to happen. And that's what he's talking about here. He's saying, just like a woman who doesn't know when labor pains are going to hit, we don't know when Jesus is coming back again. But at the same way, just like a woman who's pregnant knows she's going to have a baby, we know without a shadow of doubt that Jesus is coming again. It's fascinating. I don't know about for, for you, those of you that have kids, but none of my kids came on their due dates. None of them, right? With all of this technology that we have, this illustration in 1 Thessalonians still holds true. We still don't know when that baby's going to be born. And actually, the percentages are really low. Only four, roughly 4% of kids come on their actual due date. What? Like on all of this equipment that we have, we still don't know. We can't pinpoint the date in which a baby's going to be born. And with all of the things that we know, all the Bible stories and all the, the studies and research that we have, we still do not know when Jesus is coming again. We don't know. But you know what? Sadly, this has not kept us from trying to guess when Jesus is coming again. I mean, back in the, the, year, two, or the year 1000, people thought, well, we're turning over to the year 1000. It must be that Jesus is coming again now. And then the year 1000 came and went, and Jesus didn't come. Then Y2K comes, for those of you that are around for that. Everybody's freaking out because what are our computers going to do as they roll over to the year 2000? Are they going to shoot off all these missiles? Is it going to be the end of the world? Like, what in the world is going to happen in that moment? So a lot of people thought, okay, Y2K, this is going to be the end of everything, right? But we were wrong, right? In the 14th century, there were famines and plagues in Europe, which led many people to think that this is the end. During the Reformation, there was so much political and religious strife. People thought this is the end of the world. This is the end. World War II happens, right, in the 40s. People are sitting there thinking, okay, now this is the end. Now we've, we've studied and we've realized that all these things are coming into place, that now this is the end. And we were wrong again. One guy became famous. He even wrote a book, 88 Reasons that Jesus Will Come in 1988. Okay, here's a picture of the book, no joke. And this book sold like crazy because this guy had worked out all the reasons why Jesus is going to come out, 88 reasons why Jesus is going to come back in 1988. <clears throat> Obviously, Jesus didn't come back in 1988. So he wrote a sequel to this book that did not sell as well as the first one, obviously, right? Guessing that Jesus was going to come in 1989. He had missed the calculation, right? And yet he was wrong. But just because we can't pinpoint the date that Jesus is coming again doesn't mean that he's not coming back. He is coming. And many people look and think, well, since we can't pinpoint the date, then I don't even know if he is coming again. 
And we doubt and we struggle whether Jesus is coming again. Even in this time, in this text, you see that some people are saying, oh, I think of Jesus coming back. Mm, That's not true. In verse 3, it says that there's a group of people that are saying peace and security. Peace and security. We're in a great place. What that means is everything's fine. Everything's good. Jesus isn't coming back again. Don't worry about anything. Don't stress. And this term, peace and security, is what the Roman Empire would use at that time when they were going to go to invade other countries. Be like, hey, don't, don't, don't worry about things. It's fine. We're bringing peace. We're bringing security to you. So countries would accept it and say, yeah, as long as you're going to bring in peace, which is in the reference of this word, a political peace, you're going to bring political peace, and security is financial security, as long as we have a political person office that we're for, and as long as we have financial peace in our own hearts and our own lives, then everything is good. They don't even think about the coming of Christ. And how many of us fit in that category? Maybe that's a little too close to home. How many of you know somebody that fits into that category, right? As long as we have the right political person in office, as long as our finances and economy is good, then everything is fine. But what's crazy is verse 3 tells us these people that say, nah, Jesus isn't coming back again. It's just all peace and security. Everything's all good. It tells us that suddenly destruction comes on them. And they're not going to escape. These type of people who flippantly disbelieve in the returning of Christ, destruction comes upon them. They can't escape. And this is a scary picture. So we have to believe in this truth because it changes and shapes the way that we live. So let me give you two points of application under this this idea that we we don't know when Jesus is coming again. It's, It's unpredictable. And the first challenge I would have for you is this. Don't let or don't have an unhealthy preoccupation of trying to figure out when Jesus is coming back. Don't have an unhealthy preoccupation to try to figure out when Jesus is coming. Don't waste your time trying to figure out the exact day and the month and the year. People have tried it for centuries and they've all come up lacking. And Jesus even said in Matthew chapter 24, when this day is, I don't know. And the angels don't know. So don't let arrogance sit in your heart to say, "Mm -mm, Jesus didn't know. I wish he was here. I'd tell him. I know where it is. I'll tell Jesus when this is all going to go down. You don't know. We don't know. You're not going to figure it out. You can get your overhead out and put 15 billion charts and try to figure out what the 10, 15 horns are and like the three years here and the seven years. You're not going to figure out the specific date and time in which Jesus is coming again. And my fear is that we get so focused on studying and making charts and doing all these things that we do nothing with this truth. We love to be spiritually overweight where we know all these facts and our heads are full and heavy on what we think we know. When in reality, God desires us for us to exercise that truth in our lives. For us to live out the fact that Jesus is coming again. And we don't know when he's coming, but he is coming again. And so we trust in that truth. And it shapes the way we live. The second application point I would give you is don't have an unhealthy neglect of thinking about Jesus coming. You see, don't think about it so much that you're like, I've got to chart it out and know the exact year or time that he's coming. But at the same time, don't never think about it. 
so often we just let the coming of Christ just drift off in the distance like it's never going to happen. And so we never think about it. We never let it shape our lives. But this passage tells us if you believe in Jesus, this day should not surprise you. It shouldn't surprise you, verse 4 tells us. Even though it comes like a thief, when it comes, you're not going to be like, oh my goodness, I can't believe it came. You're going to be like, oh my goodness, it came. Like, it's here. It's now. And he uses this, this analogy in here of light and darkness. And he says, those who love and know Jesus and love and know his word are children of light or children of the day. And that term all throughout scripture is to talk about illumination. That's what light does, right? You turn a light on and you can see things. And what this passage is telling us is that when we trust in Jesus and we know him and he's changed our lives, there's a light that comes on. And we see the world like, we, like we've never seen it before. In the light of Christ, we know he's coming again. Jesus spoke it. He said it. We enjoy that. We meditate on that truth. And we live in light of knowing that he is coming again. But the opposite of that is darkness. When you walk in darkness, you stumble over things. You don't think about or, or see what's in front of you. Darkness can sometimes keep your senses from working the way they're supposed to. In the same vein of darkness you see in this passage, he talks about drunkenness. And the Bible does speak about don't get drunk, but that's not what Paul's using that illustration for in this passage. He's using it to talk about those who numb their hearts and their minds by all of these things in the world. So they don't think about the coming of Christ. They're neglecting to ever think about it. They're letting that peace and security be the thing that comforts their heart the most. And all throughout scripture, God is inviting us into the light that we would see the world and how it was created. In Psalm 82, speaking of those who are in darkness, he says, they neither have knowledge or understanding. They're not illuminated. They can't see things around them. So what do they do? They walk about in darkness. Proverbs chapter 4, this is great. It highlights both the light and the darkness there. He said, the path of righteousness is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like a deep darkness. They don't know over what they stumble. See, and that's the reality for us when we don't know Jesus. Is that we sit in darkness. We continue to stumble over despair and stumble over sin and stumble and stumble. Which is why Jesus came. John chapter 8, Jesus says this as he spoke to them. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So what Jesus does is he comes on the scene and he is the light of the world. Illuminating to us the, the depths of our sin, but also the heights of God's love. We can see it so clearly when we look to Jesus. So in this moment, Jesus is being a light to show us our sin and our darkness, but at the same time to give us hope that he is coming again. And so we don't know when that day is, but that day should give us a deep, deep hope. And that day we shouldn't neglect thinking about. Let's think about it. But let's not think about it to such an extent that it all consumes us. And we think we know all of the answers for these things. Instead, let it shape, let it change the way that we live. Which is where Paul spends the last part of this passage. Telling us to live your life knowing that Jesus is coming. 
see him. We know that Jesus is coming again, but we don't know when Jesus is coming again, and so we should live like Jesus is coming again. You see, when you know the future, when you know something without a shadow of a doubt about the future, it shapes the way you live today. If you knew what tomorrow holds, you would, you would live differently today. You would, and we should. Knowing this truth that Jesus is coming again, knowing the future should shape how we live today. It's just common sense. I mean, even the craziness of Hollywood understands this, right? You look at Back to the Future. They know something about the future. Marty McFly, the, the, the hero of the story, knows I'm, I'm trapped in the future. I, you know, I want to get back to, to my time. But I know that the clock is going to strike at this certain time. Electricity is going to come down and I can get back to my time. I can get back to the future, right? So he does something because he knows something about the future. On the flip side of that, the villain, Biff, right? He goes and gets the the almanac and he knows who's all going to win the sporting events. So he can bet on that and win and make all this money, right? Because when you know the future, it shapes how you live today. And this passage is telling us that. If you know that Jesus is coming again. And you know that there's a sense of judgment that's coming on that day. It should shape how you live today. It should change how you live. All right, Paul, how, how should it shape how we live? What are, what are we supposed to do? Well, in this passage, it tells us we should fight the good fight. We should fight the good fight when we think about Jesus coming again. You're like, what, Ryan? Where? Where does it say that? Well, in verse 8, Paul switches to a new analogy. A new illustration. He talks about the armor a soldier would wear. You see that? He says, in light of knowing that Jesus is coming again, put on the breastplate of faith and love. And put on the helmet, which is the hope of salvation. He's like, suit up. Armor up. We're going to wage war. But, but not in the sense that other religions say, well, kill the infidel. Let's get guns and bullets and shoot and war against people. This is not what it's calling us to do. You see, knowing that Jesus is coming again doesn't mean we build fallout shelters and we store up bottles of water. That's not what God is calling us to do in this passage. Instead, he's calling us to be a light in a dark world as we wait for Christ to come. And he says, put on the breastplate of faith and love. Fight the good fight. And that word for faith there, when it talks about the breastplate of faith, it's protecting our heart, it's protecting our vitals, right? Faith helps us fight against despair that we find in our world. You see, if, if the knowledge of the future is always present in our mind, then why are we so down by this thing? If we have this breastplate of faith that covers our hearts, It defends us against despair because we know that Jesus is coming again. And that all these broken things and all the injustices are going to be fixed. He's going to wipe every tear from our eyes. He's going to defeat death in the grave. When we know that, it allows us to move forward with a sense of faith and hope and love. It changes how we live. It moves us out of despair into deeper faith. See, this is what God's word is calling us to do. This is what turns the world upside down. This deep faith that Jesus is going to make all things right. It also gives us a depth of love that we would not have apart from Jesus. Put on that breastplate of love. The love that guards our hearts is the love for Jesus and his return. 
See, when we love and, and, and know that Jesus is coming back, then why are we bitter? Why is there unforgiveness in our lives? Why do we envy other people? You see, we should be willing to forgive other people because we know that a day of the Lord is coming where judgment is going to happen. And so if somebody has wronged you, you know Jesus is going to fix that. So I can forgive them. I can let things go and trust that vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. I can believe in that. That allows me to love in a different way that I've never loved before. It keeps bitterness from seeking deep down into my heart. Because this world is not the end. The way things are right now aren't the way things are always going to be. And why in the world would we ever envy other people when we know that God is going to give us more than we ever hoped or imagined when he comes again? This is the kind of love that we can have that extends into our world and changes it. And this is how we war against the dark world. We put on the breastplate of faith and love. And then we put on the helmet, our hope of salvation. And I love the order of this because if you read other sections in the Bible, in Colossians and Galatians, it says that our faith and our love come from our hope. Grows from our hope. And this is the kind of hope that we desperately need. I mentioned this when we started this book several weeks ago. I look at our world, and it's a hopeless world. And we as a church desperately need a deep, rich sense of hope that Jesus is coming again. And this isn't the only thing we live for here in the now. And right here, it's telling us, put on that hope of salvation. You see, we have hope in salvation that when we pray, God, would you save me from my sins? In an instant, we are justified. We are forgiven of our sins. And then the process of salvation continues to work in our heart where we're sanctified, where we look more and more like Jesus. Although we're already saved, although we're already adopted, Jesus is making us look more and more like him. But when he comes again, then we will be glorified. Everything will be made right with our broken bodies and our sinful hearts. And so we have a hope of salvation that even personally God is redeeming us. He's fixing us. But also our world, we have a hope of salvation. And so may our hope as Christians not be like an old book on a shelf that, that we've never read, that just gathers dust. That we take that hope and treasure that hope. And that we think on the realities of Jesus coming again. And may it build us up. May it encourage us. And that's where verse 11 ends. It says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. Just as you're doing. You see, we build one another up on this truth that Jesus is coming again. But in verses 9 and, nine and 10, he tells us, rest in the hope of your salvation. Where does our salvation come from? Where does the hope that we know that we're going to be saved, that we know that we're going to be redeemed, where does it come from? Our good works, our good thoughts, the way we fix this world? No, it says in verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our salvation and the hope of salvation does not rest on us, does not rest on a political leader. It rests on Jesus and Him alone. How in the world are we saved then? Verse 10 tells us that he died for the best. Jesus died in our place. That's our hope of salvation. Our hope of salvation rests in 
him and what he has done for us. And then he uses this language, whether we are awake or asleep, we might live for him. It's going back to where we were last, right, last week, that whether you're dead or whether you're alive, you have hope in living with Jesus. And God's word calls us to encourage one another with these truths. Remember the gospel. Remember the gospel, the beauty that you are more sinful than you ever dared to imagine, but you're also more loved than you ever dared to dream. And this is what we have in Jesus Christ. And for those of you that are struggling to forgive others and you want to bring justice on your own, remember that justice has been done on Jesus for you on your behalf. This is how God forgave you. He didn't just sweep your sins under the rug and say, you're good to go. No, he bore your sins on the cross. He died for us. This should encourage us, church. This should give us deep, deep joy and build us up. And so let me challenge you Christians in the room. This week, pray, God, would you allow me to build up somebody else with this truth this week? Would you allow me to encourage somebody in the gospel this week? You see, verse 10 is not sentiment. This is a command for us. Therefore, since we know that Jesus is coming again, encourage one another and build one another up. We will spend so much of our week breaking people down and complaining about things. For a moment, would we pause and remember this passage and remember this truth that Jesus has not destined us for wrath but rescue? And the way that we get that rescue is through Jesus Christ who died for us. Praise God for that. May we sing loudly for that. We should not be sitting around here on a Sunday morning like, oh, praise the Lord, paid my debt. No, we sing loud. He is the one who has rescued us from wrath. If you take away the wrath and justice from God, then you have neutered what the gospel is. You see, we need to realize and understand that judgment is coming for our sins. But for those of us who would look to Jesus, that judgment and wrath came down on him. So we're forgiven. That's where our joy comes from. That's where our hope comes from. That's why we sing to Jesus because of the truth of the gospel. It should change the way that you and I live our lives knowing that this is what is ahead of us. It should do something to our hearts and our minds. One of my, my favorite books, The Chronicles of Narnia, in there... It talks about how these four kids get into this world called Narnia. And they're called the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve. And while they're in this world, they see that this world is much like ours. It's broken. That these kids look around and it's always winter, but it's never Christmas. Which for a kid is like the worst, right? <laughs> it's winter, but never Christmas. And so they see the brokenness and the coldness of the world is ready to shatter. And in this moment, they hear about Aslan, who's going to come and is going to fix these broken things in this world. And all these friends that they're meeting are, are talking about how he's on the move. He's, he's coming here. And when he comes, he's going to fix all these broken things. He's going to bring Christmas. All these people who have died in the past and been turned to stone are going to be brought back. And so as friends share this with the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve, this is what C.S. Lewis writes. He says, it's a very curious thing what happened when we heard that Aslan was coming. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you and I do. But this moment, these words that were spoken felt quite different. Perhaps it's 
Sometimes it's happened to you in a dream that someone says something which you don't understand in the dream, but it feels as if it has enormous meaning, either terrifying one, which turns the whole dream into a nightmare, or else a, a lovely meaning, too lovely to put into words, which makes the dream so beautiful that you remember it all of your life, and you're always wishing that you could get back into that dream again. It's like that now. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump inside them. Edmund, the one who ultimately betrays the kids and betrays the good people, when he hears that Aslan is coming again, he felt a mysterious calling. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous with this truth. Susan felt as some delicious smell or delightful strain of music had floated by her. Lucy got the feeling when you feel when you wake up in the morning realizing it's the beginning of the holidays and it's the beginning of summer. You see, for some of us, in the same way, we hear about the returning of Jesus and it does something inside of us. Maybe you get brave and you're like, I want to tell people about the coming king. Or maybe it just gives you peace and comfort knowing that Jesus is coming again like the girls did. Maybe you hear about this day of judgment and it brings fear, mysterious fear, inside of you. What are you going to do? What are you going to do with this truth that Jesus is coming? If you're here and you're thinking about the end times and it meets you with fear, would you look to Jesus in faith today? Would you say, I, I don't understand all these things, but I want to trust in you. Would you save me? And know if you cry out to him and you pray, that, tr that truth that we just read, he has not destined you to wrath, but to rescue. It's yours. It's yours if you would call it this morning. And you can look to the day of Christ coming not with fear, but with faith and with love and with hope. And so please, I, I beg of you, would you turn to Jesus today so that you could meet a rescuer and not wrath. Pray to him now. And if you have questions about how to believe in Jesus or who Jesus was or what it means to follow him, please, I invite you to, to come and to talk with me or one of our staff. We want you to know Jesus. He wants you to know him. So make that step of faith today to come and talk with him. And for the believers in the room and those that are watching online, would you come to Jesus now with a sense of hope? Would you come with, with boldness and excitement and peace and knowing that he's coming again? And would you be so brave and bold to share this good news with those who don't know? you pray, God, give me a chance this week to be a light for you in a dark world. Please pray to him now and know that he hears and he will answer. Jesus, thank you that you forgive us. Thank you that you loved us so much that you were willing to take the wrath in our place and you died for us. But that's not where it ended. You rose from the grave and you are coming again. So, Lord, you have bought our hope with your blood. 
to know we sing of the different companies of your goodness and your grace and your peace and your love. Because you're worthy of it. And we praise you. Let's stand and let's sing loud to the one who saved us and is coming again.